0: This is the Women Emerging Expedition podcast, so you can follow the ups and downs and the roundabouts of the expedition and play your part in them. 24 women started on the 28th of May, 2022 on this virtual expedition that will take nine months. We are women from across the world, determined to find an approach to leadership that resonates with women. We'll be successful so that women the world over will be able to say, if that's leadership, I'm in. Welcome, 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 Julie Middleton, expedition leader. It is 10 weeks today. Till the expedition ends, when the members all come together in Bellagio, off Lake Como in Italy hosted by the Rockefeller Foundation, and we put together an approach to leadership that resonates with women based on the work that we've done over the last year. These two episodes are devoted to to really giving, again, we did it earlier this year, we're doing it again now, two episodes on giving people a sense of the context in which we will be meeting in Bellagio. This first episode is going to go into a number of subjects. Firstly, the climate change. Two extraordinary women, first Francesca and then Twila, who are going to talk about the climate change issues. Then, because that obviously leads into this produces a huge challenge for the new international order, Claire is going to talk about the wars that are currently going on and the impact that they will have on the international order, and then I suppose that sort of leads logically into what is the legal framework in which the world is currently working. And I think Sheila will make the case that we have a weakening legal framework. So first and foremost, I'm going to start with climate change. And Francesca is going to speak first, Francesca has an extraordinarily extraordinary podcast, which is overwhelmingly worth listening to. And I started by asking her why she started this podcast. Just before you listen to the Francesca interview, an apology. The audio is not as good on this interview. Um, there's nothing much I can do about it other than to say, do not switch it off. She, Francesca is completely fascinating. So there are
1: two things in particular that I decided to focus on.
0: One was the
1: fact that if there is one thing that we humans are good at, that is transforming ourselves and the surroundings. We are the only species that is incredibly good at this. And the other thing was the reflection on the fact that over the past few years, the vast majority of communication around climate change has been to share visions apocalyptic visions of what will happen if we miss the uh, goals that were set with the paris agreement but there was not um, enough effort on communicating the vision of what happens if we do actually meet those goals so what will the world look like if we actually reduce if we if we reach the goal of zero emissions and so part of my effort in writing the episodes became to sort of use the, the energy almost as, um, uh, as a device to talk about the vision for a world where sustainability matters, where life is more sustainable, not just in terms of like recycling or using less energy or up, using technology to optimize uh, our consumption habits, but also where where life is more sustainable because we have, for example, stopped focusing on accumulation and we started focusing on distribution. For example, one of the messages that emerged from one of my favorite episodes, which is the episode about the uh, geothermal energy, is that the energy the, the, the heat of the earth is constantly produced. And part of the reason why we don't use it as much to uh, to cool and to heat our houses is because, you know, in, in history so far we have decided as human beings to focus to use resources that are naturally scarce to solve many of our problems because when a resource is scarce, who whomever. Uh, whoever uh, gets their hands on these resources can make a huge profit out of it. But what if we start focusing on resources that are abundant, uh, naturally abundant, and we put the effort not in the accumulation of scarce resources, but on the distribution of abundant resources. So this is, this is one of the questions that the podcast raises. Give me another, give me another story from one of the other episodes. And the second episode is about the sun. The underlying thesis of the episode of the sun is that using solar energy is a great way to promote peace because no country can uh, forbid the sun from shining. Uh, One problem with the communication around climate change has been that the, the energy transition and the green transitions were framed as the punishment that we deserve for having been bad in the past. And this sort of storytelling doesn't work with the vast majority of people. And so part of the, the overall the effort of the podcast is to frame the green transition, not as the punishment that we deserve, but as the greatest challenge that humanity has ever decided to face. In the sixties, we were able to gather around the space race. And the common um, goal of putting the first human being on the moon, and uh, one of the ways that I uh, that I wanted to work on the Agudan episode is to frame this the green transition as the Earth race. So if we were inspired back then by the opportunity to put the first human being on the moon, now we should. Be inspired by the opportunity to save the planet that we live on, and if we frame it like that, and we start telling people, "Look, we do have a chance to fix a lot of what's wrong right now. A lot of what's making us miserable, because having a more sustainable society means to reduce the gap between the super rich and the super poor." Part of the the uh, challenge and also the opportunity with renewable energy is that if we move away from uh, fossil fuels and we move to a world where uh, every country is given the opportunity to produce the energy that they consume, this means that even countries that right now don't have access to energy will have access to energy, but that also means that if we want to do this, and if we want to become autonomous energetically, we need to uh, learn how to reduce energy consumption. Because right now we, over the past, one thing that, I, that we say in the podcast is that it is just a, a very recent thing, like the past two generations have learned to take it for granted that we can keep the lights on as much as we want, that we can use as much as hot water as we want, And uh, that is not necessarily a good thing, but we also need to remember that it's not like it's always been like that. We can learn how to use in a better way the resources that we we made available for for ourselves, keeping in mind that there are other billions of people that require the same amount of energy that we need. Do you think that the friction between younger women and older women on the subject of the environment will increasingly become toxic and difficult and full of tension Uh, what i see is that there is a sort of three generations that are involved here there is a very young generations uh, so Gen gen z and then there is uh, the people, the women that are now around 50 years old. And then there are the grandmothers. Now, grandmothers and Gen Z on the sustainability issue are closer than the generation of their parents is with Gen Z, which is an interesting phenomenon. It may be because uh, people were now in their 70s, in their 80s, remember a world that that was more sustainable. So there is a sort of a Gen Gen Z looking forward and older generations looking back meet (laughs) and can share many values that are true of the green uh, transition. Whereas the generation of uh, people that are now around 50 years old are, you know, sons and daughters of the economic boom where part of their privilege was built on ignoring the environment, on ignoring the challenges of uh, the infinite growth. So it's like ideologically they've been raised to identify this, the very special part of being their generation is linked to the idea of infinite growth. So it is more challenging to to sort of put the paradigm upside down and to to turn it upside down and to question it because it is an identity uh, matter. So I I believe that there is a, a, a lot of need to speak about these issues with an open mind and without both from Gen Z and from other generations to not assume bad faith from any of the people involved. This is increasingly more important because uh, as we live in an incredibly polarized society where um, people want to overlap completely, entirely with the party that they vote for or their system of beliefs, that leaves too little room to grow as a society and to understand that we, We don't need to agree on everything to do something together.
0: Thank you, Francesca. Now let's go over to Twyla. Is it totally inevitable that climate change has to divide the world up? Right now, I fear that we
2: move more towards division as we are dealing with the impacts of climate change, as we're dealing with Droughts and floods and and impacts that are very different on a country to country level and across um, rich countries and and those who um, and poorer countries, so I am concerned that right now climate change I do think is creating larger divides broadly but it's not set in stone, right? Humans are the ones creating the systems that allow this to happen. We are creating economic systems and policy systems and interpersonal relationship systems. So it need not, I feel like, be inevitable, but I do think it's a uphill um, battle to consciously create responses and systems that are reducing division. In many ways, we actually do see some reductions in the division regarding the truth of climate change and that humans are causing it and that it's a serious problem. But there's still ample room for division on the means of addressing climate change. And this is where I work towards helping people understand that they're, we're in an all-hands-on-deck situation um, where we do need action from governments, from businesses, from individuals, um, from communities. And I think that there are still um, divisions that might say, oh, this is a fully uh, open market situation or governments need to do all of the work, this, these sorts of divisions on, on how we respond. But I do worry about nationalism um, becoming a, a large issue that gets in the way of climate action, because there's a real need as we look at the possible scenarios of the future, the best scenarios where we're um, doing a lot to reduce fossil fuel burning, and we're coming close to our um, temperature targets that world governments agreed on. Um, those scenarios generally lay out a relatively cooperative international landscape. And I worry about nationalism, not necessarily directly connected or or because of climate change, having some fairly negative impacts on how it is that we um, address climate change and our ability to do it globally. And I think it can be hard to understand both how much change is possible over a short period of time. Humans tend to underestimate how different things will be 10 years from now than they actually will be. So we do have a tendency to underestimate the change possible, but also people are so busy these days, busy, just rolling balls or keeping them all in the air. And in that way, uh, years can tick by very rapidly. So it's not as though there's a expiration date on climate action. There's really this narrow window right now in which there are some changes that if we don't address them during this five to 10 years, we won't be able to uh, address them later. Um, and with each moment of taking stronger and um, more rapid action now, we're minimizing um, the how much work that will be into the future. Each element of work that's presented in front of us now only gets harder the more that we delay it. And some of it becomes impossible to change. And I do think that this kind of time scale. I think the frustration of being young and realizing the, the full situation of climate change, that's another thing is many people who are older, climate change wasn't something you learned in school. It wasn't a big part of education. So it's been a very rapid onset issue, not in the sense that of scientists and many across the world actually didn't understand this early on but so much was put work and real conscious effort was put into muddying the waters around climate change that it has felt like a rapid onset issue um, that is moving very quickly and so if you're young and you understand this. You also can't really see yourself being able to, in this short period of time, step into all of these different points of power to feel that you will be able to undertake those change yourself. So there's real dependence on older generations and people in power now to do something because we simply don't have time to totally move, um, but generationally our, our, um, people in power
0: how will climate change how leaders need to lead in the future climate change
2: brings us in to a constantly evolving world i sometimes hear people talk about a new normal and that's not a concept Leaders are going to have to be conceiving of the work that they do within this ecosystem of change now and change expected to come without being able to know precisely what is that full range of change to come but knowing that we have to work our darndest right now to minimize the change. So it's a lot of parts moving. And I think it also connects with a wide range of emotional spaces that leaders have to be aware of um, for those that they're leading. Because there's a need to give space to negative and fearful and difficult and angry and sad emotions those need space and they're going to continue to need space because we are in now in a state of undergoing really responding to this this continuous change and a loss of things that were familiar to us, memories of our youth, this sort of element. But in that leader space, you also have to help people, change those difficult emotions and gather them together in order to be inspired in order to find ways to be collaborative and in in, an ability to create and move towards a visionary future Um, and that's different than what we've always necessarily depended on leaders for
0: thank you twyla on to Claire, Twiler, you bring up the issue of nationalism, um, which I know that Claire will pick up on, but first, let's pick up this issue of how likely is it that we're going to see a cooperative international order so claire, if if Twyla talks about a cooperative international order, how likely are we to get one?
3: The implicate right now we're seeing the implications of the wars, and they're going to be felt for. A long time. The consequences of the war in Ukraine, there's also wars in Yemen, there's the consequence of uh, conflict in Afghanistan, in Iraq, uh, Ethiopia, a number of places around the world that are experiencing conflict. And as a result of that, there's a number of shifts that are going to take place at an international level. Every region of the world has been affected by this. Challenges that these wars present, for example, there's going to be food insecurity, Added on to that, there's also going to be the continued pressures from refugee flows. Added on to this, again, there's also, I think, the emotional dimensions. If you have this scale of conflict and this scale of uncertainty, you're going to have to deal with trauma. You're going to have to deal with the legacies of what this means for generations of people, for children, for people who don't have a place they can call home, who don't feel like there is a space where they can feel at ease and they can feel they can settle. So what is getting in the way of this global cooperation? As I've mentioned, I think war and the fact that war creates these dividing lines between states, people get behind um, one state or the other, it creates these divisions and these tensions, Um, but that's not only thing that's getting in the way of this cooperation. There's also different worldviews and visions of what the world should look like. China and Russia have been working together more collectively to offer a different vision of the world and they're building alliances not just between themselves but also with a number of other countries in Asia, in Africa, to try and create more of an alliance of states who want to see an alternative, to the traditional Western order that we've seen for the most part of the last 100 plus years. It's interesting to look, for example, at what um, China has been putting out in response to the war in Ukraine, calling out some of what it perceives as the West's double standards. And so some of them have said, look, you're criticizing Russia's intervention in Ukraine, but you've also done interventions. And so addressing those different perceptions is gonna be very hard to reconcile. There needs to be someone and some groups of people who were able to try to find common ground between them when different sides are calling out the other for their actions, for their histories, for their intentions. And normally we would see in the international, it would be dominated by um, America, Europe, Canada, this kind of traditionally Western, so to speak, alliance of states. But these countries, too, have experienced a huge amount of instability in recent years is a lot of people are feeling marginalized by the political system, by the economic system, by systems and structures that they do not feel work for them. And also where there are factors such as technology, which are changing the way we live and where those in power, both in politics, but also in other areas of society are not giving sufficient explanations or sufficient assurances for what those shifts mean for how people live and for what their future means, for the security of their livelihoods, of their jobs, for their families, for their opportunities. So there's this kind of reckoning about, well, what does this future look like? Where do we find this security and stability? And it's as much as it's an issue of international order and the international system, there's also a huge amount of work that has to be done to stabilise the domestic front in a number of countries around the world. To make sure that the foundations are far stronger for the international order, to make sure that people have the capacity and the desire and the intent and the ability to be a cl- collaborative and cooperative actor on the international stage, because if you have too much dominating the home front, it makes it very hard to commit resources and people or time and effort to collective solutions.
0: Claire, what's on the top of your change list?
3: I think Western countries, especially European, American, North American countries, need to learn to listen and speak with all states and not just between the great powers Climate change is one of those areas where we're seeing a lot of smaller states coming together to say you're not listening to the concerns we have. And we've got really interesting figures, such as the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley, who has set out a very different vision for the international system, which is the Bridgetown agenda, saying there's a different way we can do this, where we can address this inequality, this um this disproportionate allocation of resources, the Um, economic asymmetry that exists within the system, we have to do more to try and do this. Kind of like a new Bretton Woods, kind of like a new vision for the international economic system. Um, But we've also seen from President Zelensky in Ukraine, he has spoken to the United Nations to share his concerns about what Russia is doing in his country. And he's also said, we need to think differently about this international system, about this forum that allows one of the great powers to do this to a smaller state and there doesn't seem to be a lot you can do to prevent them from doing this and it's not just Ukraine that has to worry about that but I think it speaks to this desire that we're seeing for there to be more equitable system for there to be more diversity and inclusion of different points of views and for them to be taken seriously and not just patronized and not just treated like a useful anecdote to add into a bigger picture but that requires a shift in how we think about the world there's no one state that can act as guarantor for everybody else they have to work with others except that maybe others have farmer experience or knowledge of what it means to live on the front line of poverty or a climate crisis or a health pandemic and learn from that and i think that's one of the biggest challenges especially for the big states who are really used to having the loudest voice, the biggest say, the biggest stick in those international fora. When people talk about power, they tend to talk about power as something that is about influence. It's about power over. It's about how to exert more leverage on others in order to achieve what it is that you want. I think this is too restrictive a vision of power, because I think we can move to ideas of power with. Rather than power over, what does it mean to have power with? And that's something that we need both to regulate the excesses of power, but also to facilitate this cooperative, collaborative exchange between people. What's next on the list? Reforming international institutions to make them up to date and fit for purpose. And this is not going to be easy. I think it's one of those really big challenges because you're dealing with organizations that contains over 100 states, often a number of additional actors and agents who are a part of this. Um, you're looking to move member states who represent millions, billions of people. That isn't going to be something that will be achieved overnight. But there, there are there is a need to start to have a dialogue about what would make these more fit for purpose. And often, we'll see with the United Security, the United Nations Security Council, um, calls for some of the emerging states and some of the emerging economies to have more representation. And women? But we don't see enough women in the multilateral fora. There's evidence that shows that women make a difference to the decisions made, that they are essential to peacekeeping, they're essential to conflict resolution, that they are often more in touch with their communities, and especially And countries where you have very strong matriarchal figures who are very much a part of their community, who know the vulnerabilities and the needs of the people within it, you need to have that represented so that when you design solutions, it reflects the people who are going to be at the receiving end.
0: Thank you, Claire. I fear we started this podcast episode with Francesca painting a picture which was immensely positive and inspiring. But, um, certainly there's a deep sense that achieving it is pretty tough, and we're very much up against it. I thought it'd be interesting to just move on now to talk to Sheila, an Armenian woman who's currently in Cambodia and and to ask her if the law is going to help us, and whether women will be at the centre of it. And to be honest, Sheila's response was not terribly encouraging. Have a listen. International law is turning authoritarian
4: uh, because it's being misapplied and used by countries that want to launch wars and use the parlance of international law to justify their actions. Um, It's more like the might is right principle is taking over Uh, And the the more authoritarian a state, the more they will use the parlance of international law in the hallways of places like the United Nations for their benefits. But it's actually a perversion, uh, in my opinion, of what it's meant to be for, you know, which is don't don't start wars. (laughs) Use diplomatic means. Don't um, pretend like uh, you didn't target a civilian. like a bunch of civilians and then call it collateral damage like it's you know there's so many examples and i think that there's been a lot of condemnation but it doesn't mean that it's not happening and that international law is not being misapplied you know what the what the law says how it's being applied there's there's a there's a gap a dangerous gap so some places are doing better than others um in the sense of you know there There have been a few international tribunals that have been set up, so the situation, let's say in Rwanda it's former Yugoslavia, and even so late, like the situation in post Khmer Rouge um, there's accountability that there's an accountability mechanism that is that has been set up for these countries. and so these people have the benefit of having been able to go through that process and watch the the major perpetrators of the crimes of these great crimes in their settings be punished by the international community but it's not fair for it to happen just for some and not for others. And women? 22 years ago uh, and it's that seems like a really long time ago but it's not that long ago when you think that you know, there was a there was a Security Council resolution thirteen twenty five that was adopted um, to involve women in the peace and security agenda in a really more like serious and robust way. Where it became understood that we're not going to be able to achieve world peace if we don't have women really like become part of the process of achieving that basically it means all countries are required to increase this participation of women and incorporate gender perspectives in all efforts at every level okay but yep. yet yet we're 22 years later and uh you know global security and the role that women play in like promoting and maintaining it it's it's just deteriorating it's getting worse <laughs> And why? I, why? I don't know why? why I, I, I can't, I have no, I don't know why. What's your I, hunch? You know, I think, look, I'm one of those women who wants a seat at that table and I, I've gotten a seat at that table uh, in a small way every, every now and again, but w- the closer I got to um, like the hard stuff, so let's say when I when I lived in Congo and you know I was there as the the spe- as the expert on sexual conflict related sexual and gender based violence on a team of experts that was meant to that was there to help the Congolese uh, military authorities investigate crimes. I was on this team, this forensic team, and uh, I was really sidelined. Like it was like people didn't understand what my my team members didn't really understand what my role was. And I was like, it's, a very, it's very simple. My role is just to make sure that we also take rapes into account, that we make sure that women, uh, that, that women and girls, or just not necessarily women. I mean, any yes. victim of sexual and gender-based violence is, is not forgotten and is treated. Uh, you know, there's, there's this whole structure about it that you, it was just being neglected. But um, yeah, I think that there, it, it's still too early for some of some people from like old mentalities who think, well, that's just not a priority. You know, we're here to investigate murder. What are you talking about this like sexual and gender-based violence? You know, but it's it's maybe it's just a matter of time. Like we just need to to fight back more and be braver and, and stay at the table, demand our seat at the table and keep it. You know, it, it, we need to start making more space at the top uh, for women instead of just being satisfied with a big bunch of women in like middle management. It's not enough. What, what is in us, what we're capable of, we, can, we haven't even touched on the, the, the tip of the surface what we can do. And just, you know, talk to a, a survivor of conflict-related sexual violence, you'll see how, un, un, what is it? Indomitable we are. <laughs> that's the word. But it would be good if the law helped us to be indomitable. It's not the law that's the problem, it's the application. It's the people who, it's, the law is actually fine. Um, it's the people who break the law and the fact that they get away with it, that's the problem.
0: So there you have it, our first context episode. Next week, we're going to do the second of the context episodes, which will be about how money is going to flow or is flowing around the world at the moment and how tech is playing its part. And, and I hope at the end of the two context episodes to pull together some of these messages about leadership and our leadership, messages that I'll take to Bellagio in February, when we all meet and look to produce an approach to leadership that resonates with women. Thank you for joining. Look forward to next week, sending you much love.
4: To become part of our movement and share your thinking with us, subscribe to the podcast and join the Women Emerging Group on our website at womenemerging.org. We love all of the messages you send us, keep them coming.